17 is where we're going to be this morning. So um, today, uh, and as you're turning there, I would like to uh, thank and um, thank our elders of our church um, in the same way that I am uh, so uh, thankful and excited for people stepping into leadership roles and the, the community of this church. Um, the elders are a big part of that, and the, the fact that um, this church is led by a community of people, a group of men who love, love you, love the Lord, um, care for this place, um, and are, are actively pursuing, wanting to see this church grow, not only numerically, but spiritually, more so spiritually. Um, and so they, they do so much to love and support and care for our church in so many different ways. I know I'm the one um, who's up here often, and Daniel's the one up here, and, and you see us, but Dave and Wayne um, do so much behind the scenes to love and care and, and lead um, and, and just pray over and shepherd this church. Um, I very much appreciate them. So Daniel, Dave, Wayne, I, I thank I, you guys are the best. I love you very much, and I'm so thankful and honored to get to serve alongside you guys. Um, today, we're going to be looking at and considering how we both communicate as well as receive from others. Specifically, how we communicate and receive truth from others. When we read a book, when we have a conversation, when we share an insight, when we listen to a sermon, what we say and how we say it, and what others say and how we listen and respond to it, all of that plays an important role in the communication of truth and how we receive it, how we give it, and how we actually respond to it. And so that's what the, the focus this morning is. Um, let's pray and then we'll, we'll get to work. So Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for days like this to celebrate you and celebrate all you're doing and just enjoy each other and enjoy time together and celebrate how you are building and shaping and developing community. God, we pray uh, for our kids. We pray for Grace Place, for the, the Grace Place volunteers that are serving up there, that you would give them energy and patience and wisdom and help them as they teach and lead and just even interact with the kids that you would um, be reminding and showing those kids how you love them through the way our leaders uh, interact with them. Lord, we pray for the, the kids of our church, those who would be in Grace Place at any point, um, whether or not they're children of members or regular attenders, any child that goes up there, Lord, that they would know your goodness, that they would know your love, that they would know and come away from that time knowing you better and, and feeling the love and knowing experientially the love of Christ. God, we pray for our community that you continue to strengthen and, and build us up and encourage and bind us together. Lord, I thank you for all the ways that you are reminding us tangibly over and over again that you are with us, that you are for us, that you care about us, that you have been doing a work in this neighborhood, in this church for so, so long, and that you uh, trust us to be able to step in and continue the work that you are doing, to invite us into the work that you are doing here. God, we thank you that you have been faithful to this church for so, so long, and that we, and we ask that you would continue to, that we might continue to be this lighthouse in this neighborhood, in this city, and around the world, that we would be able to shine the light of the gospel in the way that we talk and the way that we act. God, I pray for Evanston Bible Fellowship and Pastor Tim as they settle into a new space and change and new seasons of um, new leadership and, and returning students, God, that you would continue to help them find stability, that you would continue to help them grow, um, that you would give them 
uh, wisdom and a sense of unity and uh, as they find ways, new ways to uh, reach out into their community uh, and reach out into the Northwestern campus that you would continue to find ways, uh, help them find ways and people of peace to, to connect with and, and engage with. Lord, as we open your word this morning, you have a word for us today. Whatever the reason is that we are here this morning, whether this is just what we do on a Sunday or we came from an invite or we just happened to show up today, God, there's a reason we're here today. There's a reason we're in this passage this morning. And so I pray that I would get out of your way and that you would be able to do a mighty work in us. Lord, as I preach, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. All right, so we're going to be in Acts 17 this morning. Um, it's a good day to have your Bibles open. Every day is a good day to have your Bibles open. Today is a good day to have your Bible open because we're going to do a little bit of jumping around uh, later on. I'm going to find my place to get me there. Give me one second. Acts 17. So uh, Paul and Silas and the crew have been traveling and are have been in Philippi, and so they continue to um, spread the gospel in these places. They have crossed over the sea, and basically everything, when they get to Philippi, from here on, they're in Europe. What we're going to look at today, they're in an area of Macedonia. What we're going to look at today, they're basically in modern-day Greece. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to look at Paul in Athens. The gospel has, has transferred over to Europe, and for most of us, we can trace our Christian lineage back to Paul and his crew not being allowed to go into Asia, that the Holy Spirit said, no, don't go south, don't go into Asia right now, I need you to go this way, I have a, a plan for you in Macedonia, I have a plan for you in Philippi, go there, and they do so, and the gospel has now entered into Europe, and as I said, most all of us can find our way spiritually back to Paul not being able to go left, but he had to go right. And so he's in uh, Philippi, and so we're going to see, um, let's pick it up in Acts 17, we're going to start in verse 1. I'm going to read the whole section, and then we'll come back and, and talk about it. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and, Apollo, and Apollonia, uh, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for, for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying, There is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God had, was proclaimed by Paul at Berea, also they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. 
Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought, brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Let's stop there. How we communicate truth, how we give it and how we receive it. Luke, in one sentence here in verse 1, says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. That's one sentence, and Luke literally covers a lot of ground in that one sentence. We ended chapter 16, remember, there was the Philippian jailer, Paul and Silas had been arrested, uh, and then there was this earthquake, and the, the jailer's about to kill himself. Paul says, don't, we're all still here. He gives him the gospel, he shares the gospel with him. The jailer and his whole family are baptized, and, and Paul and them are in Philippi, and then they are told to leave by the authorities. Paul then tells them, no, I'm a Roman citizen. You didn't treat me like that. You need to come and apologize. They do, and Paul and Silas and the crew are on their way, and they leave from Philippi. From Philippi, they go to Amphipolis. That's about 30 miles. That's a one day's journey-ish. From Amphipolis to Apollonia is about 30 miles. That's about another day's journey. From Apollonia to Thessalonica is almost 40 miles. Again, another day. So Luke, in a matter of like nine words, covers close to a 100-mile journey that Paul and Silas and Timothy went on. They spent a few days walking all the way to Thessalonica. That was their final destination. They wanted to get to Thessalonica. Because Thessalonica is a major city with major influence. It was still, it was and is still a principal city of that area. It still is there today. It's still bustling. It's still very large. It's a harbor town, which means it was populated with a diverse group of people and a central hub of trade and commerce. Everybody shows up there. See, Paul was always strategic in what cities he visited. He wanted to find places that had a great influence in the area, knowing he's limited, right? He's one person. He's only got so much time, so much bandwidth. He's going to keep traveling. They're going to keep, people are keep, going to keep getting mad and running him out of town. And so he finds inten intentional cities to go to that will have a great effect. He realizes the gospel doesn't rest on him. The gospel is not going to stop. If he doesn't share, if he doesn't go to every town, every city, every little one-stop-light town that's around there, that's okay. He doesn't have to save anyone or everyone because he knows that if he is faithful to preach the gospel, if Paul can get into these cities in a city like Thessalonica and he can get into the synagogue and he can preach the gospel and he can find those people of peace, that the Holy Spirit is the one who does the changing and calls people to repentance. He can keep moving. He can keep on going from town to town, city to city, and the gospel will go forward and continue to spread without him. He can find those people, proclaim the gospel, and they're going to share it. They're going to go forward. They're going to continue spreading that message. And that's what we've seen happen in the book of Acts. Over and over again, people have spread, and they've taken with them this message of hope and they've gone to these new cities, these new areas, and they've shared the gospel with others, and it's continued to spread. And so it says Paul went into, when they finally get to Thessalonica, they're in the synagogue, they go to a synagogue of the Jews, and as was his custom, that's always his plan, he's going to go to the synagogues first. Jesus told him, the message of the gospel goes to the Jews first, then to the Gentiles. That's Paul's kind of standard way of proclaiming the message. 
He goes into the synagogue. It says he's there for three Sabbaths. That's three Saturdays. He's there for at least a couple of weeks. What is Paul doing in between these Sabbaths? Right? We know what he's doing on Saturdays. We know what he's doing. He's spending the day. He's in the temple. He's teaching. He's preaching. But what's he doing in between those things? Well, he's in Thessalonica, and we have two of his letters that he writes later on to those people in Thessalonica. And in 2 Thessalonians 3, it says, For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. See, Paul had a job. He was an independent contractor. He was self-employed. He was a tent maker. He worked with his hands as a way to provide for his needs so that he would never be a burden to churches, so that him proclaiming the gospel, him being a minister of the gospel, was never going to be a financial burden to people. He was going to pay his way. If churches wanted to give and support him, great, but he was never going to ask for anything because he wanted to make sure there was no barriers, no reason for them not to listen to the gospel. He didn't want the financial burden to stop someone from hearing the truth of Christ. And so on the Sabbath days, though, he was in the synagogue. And he went to the synagogues to talk with those who followed Judaism in a hopes of pointing them to Jesus. And we see in verses 2 and 3, there's three key words I want us to look at this morning. In verse 2, it says, Paul went in as was his custom, and on Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. He's reasoning, explaining, and proving. It says he reasoned with them from the scriptures. This word reasoned is dialegomai. It's where we get our word dialogue. It's a question and answer. It was back and forth. It was a conversation. This was a typical pharisaical rabbi way of teaching. It was questions and answers. Not just questions from the front, but taking questions from others and going back and forth. It was a conversation. And what did he use for the basis of his conversation? It says he reasoned with them from the scriptures. He used what he had. He used what they had, what they knew. He met them where they were. He used what we would call the Old Testament, the prophets, the law, Psalms, the, the books of wisdom. He would discuss and answer questions and ask questions using the word of God as a way to point people to Jesus, using the Old Testament to point people to Jesus. And so he reasoned with them from the scriptures. He used to have this dialogue, had this conversation, went into the thing that has guided and led these people for generation upon generation, and he pointed them forward. It also says he explained with them, literally to open up something that was closed, to expound on something. Paul was connecting the dots. He was showing the people how point A connects to point B to connect to point C. He was showing them how all of these promises, all of these prophecies, all of these, these different places where, that talk about this son of man or talk about this anointed one, this Messiah, this set apart one, how all of these things, they've been fulfilled in Jesus. They were fulfilled by Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. They weren't still waiting. They didn't have to keep looking. He had already come. He had already done what he had come to do, and he had already risen from the dead and ascended to heaven. And so he explained, he said, look, you were, you had, your eyes were closed. These things were closed off to you, but I want you to see. I want to open this up for you and see 
what you have been missing. He reasoned with them. He explained and he proved. It's a legal term. It's give evidence. In a court case, when you are providing the evidence before the jury to try and convince and sway them to your way of thinking. Again, not only showing them all the ways that the Old Testament points to Jesus, but the why. Why he had to be God. Why he had to be human. Why he had to suffer. Why he had to die. He gives the why to all of these things because that was a big hang-up for those Jews was that this idea of the suffering servant that Jesus embodies, that Jesus is. All of Isaiah 53 really talks about it. This idea of the suffering servant was something that was very off-putting to the, to, the, to the Jews. Even when Jesus himself is preaching and proclaiming and talking about how he was going to have to suffer and die in his ministry, Peter pulls him aside and says, Jesus, look, you got to cut it out with this death stuff. you got to cut it out with this suffering stuff. Nobody wants to hear that. And Jesus rebukes Peter. It was a big sticking point for people because the Jews wanted a triumphant Messiah. They wanted a king. They wanted somebody who could politically and socially rescue them out from oppression, establish them once again as a nation, get them out from oppression under whoever was in charge at the time. They wanted somebody who was going to start a revolution. They didn't want a suffering servant from the middle of nowhere. They didn't realize how badly they needed that. And so Paul engages with them, showing them the why, proving, reasoning, explaining. He engaged with the people. He didn't mock them. He didn't belittle them. He didn't fight or shut others down. He answered questions, and he asked questions. He made them think. It was an interaction, and it was all of it was grounded in Scripture. It wasn't just, I'm going to show how wrong you are and shut you down and make you feel stupid. It was, I want to show you this thing that you haven't seen before. I know this truth. I have, I've experienced it. I've lived it. I'm currently living it. It's important, and I want you to understand it. He let the conversation be driven by the word. He stayed in scripture and he let that drive the conversation. He let the Bible do the heavy lifting. Now we don't know what verses or passages Paul pointed them to. Could have been any number of them. Could have been something like Isaiah 7:14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. God with us. If ever there was a prophecy that kind of just focused, pinpointed on who this Messiah was going to be, let's look for the virgin who gives birth. Oh, a virgin girl gave birth? Maybe we should pay attention to that. Or things like Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah talking about this one, this suffering servant who was going to come, is talking about Jesus and his suffering. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. All of the wrath of God was laid out on him. Paul will work it out later in 2 Corinthians for he who knew no sin became sin so that you and I might inherit the righteousness of God. Paul will say every sin on him was laid. Everything from Adam and Eve biting into that fruit up to the cross and every sin that will ever be committed up until Christ comes back. 
Christ paid the wrath, paid the penalty for. And Isaiah knew it. Isaiah was talking about it. Though he couldn't see him, though he wouldn't live to see him, he talked about this one, and Jesus fulfills that in his death and resurrection. Maybe Paul sends them to Leviticus eleven seventeen, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for, by the life. It is the blood that makes atonement. We are saved. We are atoned. Our sins are paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ, by his sacrifice for us. It is the blood that atones for us. The sacrificial system of bulls and goats and chickens and whatever else they were cutting open and throwing around the tabernacle, that was just a picture. It was never meant to save. The writer of Hebrews later on will say the blood of bulls and goats could never save a soul. It was a picture. It was a holding place. It was something better is coming. A perfect sacrifice is coming. And what the writer of Leviticus says in Leviticus 11, he says the blood is the thing that atones. There is a sacrifice that needs to be made. We needed a sacrifice, a perfect holy sacrifice, and Christ is the only one who could do that for us. Over and over, Paul could have spent and did spend literal days and days taking the Old Testament and saying, here's what the prophet said, here's what David wrote, here's what Moses wrote, and here's how Christ fulfills it. In the midst of all of this, though, his goal, his end game was always the same. It was not for personal gain or notoriety. He wasn't looking for fame and fortune. Paul was driven by the reality that he knew and he wanted others to know something. He knew the gospel. He went into these synagogues saying, look, I know this truth. Scripture is clear that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the promised one of God. And if you would believe that, you will be changed by that. Paul is driven by seeing others know the truth of the gospel. Intellectually, right, he reasoned, he explained, he proved, he did it methodically, he did it logically, which is why he takes the time to dive into scripture with them and ask questions and answer questions. And let's go to the word, let's see what scripture actually has to say. He wants them to know the truth of the gospel intellectually, but he also wants them to know the truth of the gospel experientially, which is also why he takes them and dives them into scripture with them. Because he wants them to see it and see how it plays out and see how it played out in reality and how it matters to us today. How the reality of the truth of the gospel, it's not just for later, it's not just for eternity. Yes, we are saved from the wrath of God, but we are saved from the wrath of God to be a blessing to others. The gospel matters for us today. It changes things for us today. Paul was driven to see people want to have them experience and know these things. What a novel concept. Instead of seeing other people as projects or an adversary to be opposed or just a faceless, nameless person on a social media website, what if instead of all of that, we saw and considered that every person, regardless of who they are and what they believe or where they come from, that every person is actually made in the image and likeness of God. Every person has value and worth, and each one God has made and knows and loves. And we saw them not as a project or a competition or something we have to defeat, but rather, I know truth. I know something that can change your very soul, and I want you to understand it. And we didn't come looking for a fight, but we came knowing that we have good news for all people, that it is a joy and a blessing that the gospel is for all people. Because of the fact that God has made all people in his image and likeness, they have value and worth. 
And they are worthy to hear the good news of the gospel. Not because we want to bolster our reputation or influence or ego, but because we know what is good. We have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, and we want to glorify him by sharing his truth with others. Even though with all this reasoning and explaining and proving, the fact that Paul spends this time with them, even with all the right motives and desires like Paul had, with all of that, we look at verse 4. And it says, some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. And some of them were persuaded. Throughout history, since God called Abraham all the way to now, there have been people who proclaim the truth. There have been people who have preached the good news, who have preached Christ, who have called people to God. And since from that time, there has always been people who have rejected. No one, not Paul, not Jesus himself, has ever preached the gospel, and 100% of the people who heard that preaching turned and responded and were saved. You can't save anyone. It doesn't matter how much Bible you know. It doesn't matter how hard you pray. You can't save anyone. I can't save anyone. You can be faithful to the message. You can engage. You can pray for people. You can shine the light of the gospel with your words and in your actions. But it is the prerogative of the Holy Spirit to soften hearts, to change hearts. It is his work that calls people to himself. It is his work that saves people. That reality should be really freeing to us. Because it's not up to us. We don't have to have every answer. We don't have to have everything perfect. Just be faithful to the message that God has entrusted to you. Just be faithful to what you know and trust the Holy Spirit is going to do what the Holy Spirit is going to do. So who did respond? Because it says some, not all, some responded. Who did respond to the message of Paul and Silas? It says some of them, meaning the Jewish believers who listened to Paul as Paul walked them through their own belief system and led them throughout history, throughout their own personal history. And he walked through the Old Testament and he answered these questions and he asked these questions and he walks them through their history, pointing them all the way to the foot of the cross, to the empty tomb, to the resurrected power of Christ. Some of them, those Jewish believers, were persuaded and became Christians and they believed. It says some devout Greeks, some who were followers of Judaism, weren't full converts to Judaism, but were around who had maybe found that they couldn't find their satisfaction, their completeness, their fulfillment in the pagan deities of Europe, of Asia, of wherever they were from. And so they find their way to Judaism. They find their way to the order and the tradition and the structure and the personal relational God, Yahweh. But even then, there's a laundry list of rules and rituals that kept them at bay. Well, you're not really a Jew until you do this, that, and the other thing, so we're going to keep you over here. Some of those devout Greeks heard the gospel, heard that it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and they said, yeah, I hear that. That's for me. And they believed. And then finally, it says some leading women. These were educated women, known to be independent and influential. They were well-trained in Greek philosophies and religious deities at the time. Now, often, when we talk about women in the Bible and women during the Bible's times, we talk about them as 
they've been put down, they're, they're subjugated, they're, they're sometimes seen as property. But again, we, we've crossed the part of the ocean here. We're in Europe, right? They're in Macedonia, and, and women were treated very differently over there. Again, they were independent, influential. They were taught and trained in Greek philosophies and religious deities. They had knowledge and, and influence in the cities. But as they had those things, as they learned these Greek philosophies and religious deities of that time, all of them pretty much are full of degrading practices when it comes to worship, especially degrading when it comes to women. And so many of these leading women, these devout women, found their way to Judaism because at least there's, some, again, some structure there and there's not the overt sexual oppression. But here now they are burdened with not only the difficulties of the law, but their station as women in Jewish society not being necessarily free or all that welcome. And so it's one of the many reasons that the gospel is so well received by women at that time. Where we see things like a couple chapters ago, we see like Lydia and her group of women at the riverbank. And they hear the gospel and they say, yeah, I'm, I'm here for that. Because the gospel, all the bondage and suffering and oppression in the role and class of women as itself is upgraded, is changed, is flipped on its head in Christ in the gospel. All of those things are changed in the gospel. And so we see these different groups come to hear the, hear the message through Paul, and they believe. All in all, the gospel is preached. Many come to faith. That's, that's a win, right? Paul spent some time. He's laying out things, and people are coming, and all kinds of different people are coming and hearing and believing. That's a win. But you see, the gospel is always presented at a cost. We see in verse 5, the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. The gospel is always presented at a cost. The gospel itself is built on a cost. Jesus' life, his blood was spilt, his life was given for us. There was a cost there. So in turn, when the gospel goes forward, there will always be a cost. This message of hope and grace made some people angry and jealous. And so they gathered some wicked men of the rabble, guys with nothing going on, guys just looking for, looking for a fight, people who just wanted to break and destroy, right? Those people who just want to watch the world burn. They get some of those guys. And this mob shows up at the house where Paul and his team were staying, the house of this man named Jason. Though Paul and the team are long gone by now, instead the mob says, well, we still got somebody. We, we're, we're all worked up. And so instead, they capture the person who owns the house, Jason, as well as some new believers, and they take them to the local authorities. Somebody's got to pay. Somebody's going to be in trouble. Let's get them. And they bring them to the local authorities with two major accusations against the men. We see in verse 6, when they could not find them, Paul and Silas, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Two major accusations. The first one, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. They have turned the world upside down. That phrase is, they have made an uproar. They have stirred up unrest. They have caused trouble. It was a revolutionary political undertones to their phrasing. They're trying to overthrow. They're trying to start something. 
In some way, we don't exactly know, but word has spread, maybe even from the events of what happened in Philippi with the, uh, with the women, with the young woman who was possessed, and Paul frees her from her possession, and people get mad, and there's an earthquake, and they're getting out free. Maybe some of what happened in Philippi traveled over. Whatever the case is, it's clear that the gospel has been seeping into dark and broken places and doing what it does, brings healing and light and hope. For some, that's troubling. And it causes unrest because there are some who want to stay in the darkness, who like the darkness, who work in the darkness and make money in the darkness. They don't want light shined. They say they have come and they have flipped the world upside down. What the gospel actually does is flip what is already upside down and broken due to sin and begins to put it back in place. The world is broken and has is in spiritual darkness due to sin, breaking our relationships with each other, with creation, with God. Sin has ruined everything. What the gospel does is come and takes what has been broken, puts it back together, and makes it new. But if all you know is upside-down chaos, upside-down brokenness and darkness, then anything that disrupts the status quo is seen as causing trouble, even when it's just trying to fix what is broken. And so the second accusation that they come to is that Paul has been teaching about another another king. This other king, Jesus. At some point in Paul's teaching, he rightly addressed the lordship of Jesus, the sovereignty of Jesus. And even though Christianity was never about political upheaval, just using that word king is enough to put the magistrates, the local authorities on high alert, and they want to squelch this quick. Any talk of There's this other king that they're trying to bolster. There's this other king, this king of the Jews, this king Jesus. Any talk of that, even though Christianity is not about politics, they hear that and they say, well, we gotta gotta get that, we gotta get rid of that. But they are right in saying that these Christians are following King Jesus. Because Jesus isn't just the Messiah, the chosen one. He isn't just the son of God. He is the king of kings, the king of all existence. And we like the idea of God as king in certain ways, right? We like the provision that he can provide, the the presence and the protection because our king is a good king. We know God is good, he's faithful, he's just, all these things. And so we like the idea of a good king in charge. We like the redemption, we celebrate it, we get dressed up on Easter Sunday for it. We, We like all of that stuff. We want him to provide for us eternal life and future and hope and grace and mercy and protection. But there is more to the sovereignty of God than just that. Because if God is going to be king over your life, if Jesus is truly king, then we are going to pray, right, the Lord's Prayer, let your kingdom come. If we're going to pray and ask the king to bring his kingdom, that means we need to be able to submit to the total authority of that king. Kings don't have checks and balances. There isn't a a division of leadership. King is soul. He does what he pleases. And so we can't pray and say, Lord, bring your kingdom but we don't want you to have total authority. It can't just be, God, be the king of my eternal life. It's got to be, God, we want you to be the king of my entire life. Your kingdom come here. Your will be done here and now, which means we are declaring our submission in all aspects of our lives. That means when we step into this idea and we want to follow Christ as king, that means, God, you are the king of my finances. You're in control of those. God, you're the king of my time, my mind, my tongue, my relationships, 
my sexuality, my gender, my identity, my work, my studies in school, my role as a spouse, my role as a relative, my role as a church member. God, you get it all. And when we start to consider that, this idea that God is in control of all of our lives, that we are submitting and giving him authority over all of that, that's when we tend to start to pump the brakes a little bit and say, you know, I, I, I don't know if I want that. I kind of like doing things my own way. I like to be my own king or queen. I want him to save me, yes, but I'm not necessarily here for him to control all of my life. And if that's the case, I don't think you really want Jesus to be the king of your life. Rather, you don't get it both ways. He is either the total authority over all of existence, or he isn't. If we tell him, you don't have the right to be the king over my life, then what gives him the right to be king over death and sin and hell? If we have the, the authority to decide what parts of our lives he can rule over, then he doesn't actually have total authority. He isn't actually totally sovereign and powerful and have complete authority if we get to decide what parts he has authority over. So either he has the complete authority or he doesn't. And if he doesn't, then you don't need to waste your time with him, right? If he's not in charge of all things, if he can't control all of existence, then he can't save you. But if he does, if the Bible is the word of God, if it is what it claims to be, if Jesus truly is God, come to earth, died on a cross, paid for our sins, rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, if he is who the Bible says he is, but you choose to ignore it, then you are still in sin and rebellion against him, and you are subject to the discipline if you are a child of God, or the punishment if you are not a child of God. Those things are different. Discipline is about restoring. He disciplines those he loves. Punishment is about judgment of sin. See, it's possible to be a child of God, to pray and ask for him to be the king of your life, and then live like that's not true. And if that's you, and you think you're getting away with it, you think you have this secret little sin, you have this secret little compartment of your life that nobody knows about, that you're in control of, that God is not king of, I promise you, your good father will at some point discipline you enough to allow you to end up living among the pigs or swallowed by a giant fish, something to help you understand that you are not living as he has made you to be and called you to be. He will go to whatever lengths he needs to go to to win you and call you back to himself. And if you are not a Christian, if you have not put your faith in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, you are right now subject to the wrath of God toward the sin and rebellion in your life. You are destined for eternal separation from God. But the king is a good king, and he has a will for you to provide and protect and give you his presence, all of which comes through Jesus, all of co which comes through faith in his life, death, burial, and resurrection. There is provision, and there is protection, and there is grace and mercy to be had. God has the authority. He is sovereign completely and wholly, regardless of whether or not we want to acknowledge it. And so, yes, Paul talks about this King Jesus. He is the king of all kings. And that made people uncomfortable. But because the evidence is scarce, the accusations weren't really at Jason and whoever else they captured. It was about Paul and Silas. They were let go. Basically, Jason had to post bail, and he was let go. 
But he was let go, and that was kind of on the condition that Paul and Silas and his team would need to leave and get out of Thessalonica. And so they do. They get out of there, and they, they leave, and they go to another city. They go to the city of Berea. It's about 50 miles from Thessalonica, about a day and a half, day and a half walk. And so Paul and Silas leave. But before they leave, I just want to touch once again, Paul and Silas's way of engaging with others around the gospel it was intentional. It was relational. Their motivation and drive was not to win or shut someone down, but rather built on the premise of love and a desire for others to know the goodness of God. The content of what we share is important. The gospel, getting the gospel right, sharing the love of God and, and the truth and reality of sin and hell and the cross, all of that is important, but the way we do it is important as well. If the word of God is, in fact, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, we got to be careful how we wield that sword. How you communicate truth is an important element in being able to connect with other people about God and who God has put you around. But on the flip side of that coin, how do you hear truth? How do you respond when someone shares truth with you? They go to Berea, like I said, about 50 miles away, and they head to the synagogue, as we've seen time and time again. And here they find a friendlier climate than the one in Thessalonica. The people here received the word with all eagerness, it says. They were noble, more noble, it says in verse 11. Noble means more willing to hear, more open-minded. They had a hunger and thirst for truth. They wanted to hear. They had an eagerness to hear and study. They examined the scriptures daily, it says, to see if these things were so. Paul went to the synagogue, does the same thing, opens the Old Testament, points them to Jesus, and then these people heard that and spent days, many days after the Sabbath, going into the text themselves and saying, is what he said true? Does this make sense? Does this actually track? They were taking what Paul had to say and comparing it to scripture to test its truthfulness. They were eager and open-minded for these new teachings, but that didn't mean they were going to follow them blindly. They were going to follow it, but first they were going to consider it and consider it in relation to Scripture. Even Paul, someone who has a pedigree, someone, right, even though he's a Christian now and he's planting churches, he's still a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He still has been formally trained. There's a reason he can walk into any synagogue and get to speak because of his pedigree, because of his background. But even him, they don't just take it blindly. <clears throat> they want to test it against Scripture because Scripture is important. In the EFCA, our denomination as a church, when it comes to the Bible, our statement of faith says that when it comes to the Bible, we believe the Bible as the verbally inspired word of God. The Bible is without error in the original writing, a complete revelation of his will for salvation, and the ultimate authority by which every realm of human knowledge and endeavor should be judged. Therefore, it is to be believed in all that it teaches, obeyed in all that it requires, and trusted in all that it promises. We want to be connected and in connection with God through, the, through his word, the Bible. If this book is what we believe it to be, the written word of God, then yes, we should be using it as our guiding point. And when we are confronted by other ideas or concepts or belief systems, we should compare them to Scripture to see whether or not they are in line with the will and teaching of God. I say it a bunch. I think I said it last week. Just because a person, church, book, podcast claims to be a Christian 
doesn't mean that it is. Doesn't mean that it's teaching things that are in line and in conjunction with Scripture. The way we know whether or not something or someone is in line with Scripture is to open the book. The only time you're opening your Bible during the week is when I get up here and I say, okay, open your Bibles to Acts 17, something is wrong. We got to go to Scripture and judge the things we are hearing and reading and listening to against what God has to say. Test the books you read. Test the podcasts you listen to, the people you talk with. Test the other pastors, the other sermons and churches you engage with. Test this pastor and this church. I asked if I could do this beforehand, so I'm not putting her on the spot, but I'm going to put you on the spot. I've been preaching here long enough. I have a general idea of everybody's listening tendencies. Chris Rico, when she listens to a sermon, when she's not loving and caring for the kids at Grace Place, she takes notes whenever she listens to a sermon. And I asked her this morning, I said, Chris, when you take notes, do you write down references? And you said yes. She writes down all the references. When I give references, she writes them down. So this morning, I referenced a couple of different verses. where We were talking about Paul and what verses he might have used from the Old Testament to point people to Jesus. Right? Did you write those down, Chris? Okay. I'm going to have you look them up for me. Okay? So I want you to go. Um, the first one was Isaiah. Let me double check my notes and make sure I'm giving you the right ones. First one is Isaiah 7.14. You guys can play, home, play along at home if you'd like. Isaiah 7.14. No, you're good. Just tell me when you're there. You got it? Isaiah 7.14 should say, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Is that what it says? Okay. Isaiah 53, verses 4, 5, and 6. Isaiah 53, 4, 5, and 6. A little Bible drill for those people that grew up in church. Let me know when you're there, Chris. You got it? Isaiah 53, 4, 5, and 6 should say, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Yeah? Good. And then the last one I quoted was Leviticus 11.17. Can you go there for me? Leviticus 11.17, if you're playing at home, towards the beginning of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Leviticus 11.17, you got it? Uh, it should say, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. No? 11.17 doesn't say anything about the blood. Doesn't say anything about atonement, Jesus. 11.17 has to do, has nothing to do with the blood. It talks about owls. Short-haired owls. Go to a Leviticus 17.11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. 
for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Yeah? Flipping of chapter and verse. It happens, right? Would any of you had known that I changed that chapter and verse had we not just done that? Bob Jim. It's fairly inconsequential, right? But what if it was something more than that? What if I just quoted a made-up chapter? What if I began misquoting or just using different words and phrases, taking verses out of context, just making verses up, you know? I just start quoting some of the minor prophets, right? And who's going to check, Obed, you know, who's going to check Amos 3? I just start making things up and adding. We cannot be willing to sit idly by and blindly accept whatever is given to us without testing it against Scripture, regardless of the source of the information. Now look, I love you. And I will do everything in my power to teach and lead you in such a way that helps you to take a step in your relationship with God. But that does not mean you blindly just take every word or idea that comes from this pulpit. Test it. Question it. Engage with it. That's how you grow. That's how you learn. That's how you develop more and more reliance on your own relationship with God and not on other people to lead you, to feed you. I love you, and I will lead, and I will feed, and I will help you grow as much as I can, but I can't do the work for you. You've got to be able to go and test those things and check those things. The Bereans were going into Scripture daily to examine Paul's teaching, meaning they went well beyond synagogue time. They went well beyond church time. And that was a regular thing. They were opening Scripture outside of church time. They were engaging with it daily. But even with that, once again, it says in verse 12, many of them believed. Not all, not every last one, but many. Because there will always be those who harden their hearts and minds to the truth. Such as the folks from Thessalonica. They get wind that Paul has made his way to Berea and is still teaching. They are so angry at Paul and Silas, they make the 50-mile trek to Berea People back then could hold grudges for days, like angry mob grudges for days. And they found some more people to agitate and stir up, and once again they try and capture and kill Paul, so Paul again has to leave. And this is why mentoring, fellowship, discipleship, growing in community, growing and building one another up in ministry, this is why it's so important. This is why it's so important that we have new leaders and we're calling and looking for new people to step into ministry roles. Paul had to leave. He couldn't stick around long enough to continue to build into people. And so he leaves behind Silas and Timothy to stay and keep answering questions and keep helping these new believers to understand and to help build this new church and understand what it means to walk in faith. Silas and Timothy were trained and ready for such an occasion as this, and so they stay behind for a bit to encourage and lead those Berean Christians. Like I said, Paul will head on to Athens, which we'll pick up next week, Lord willing, and see him communicate truth in a totally different way. We saw him today in the synagogue preaching from the Bible. Next week, he's going to be in amongst the philosophers. And he's not going to be able to go to the Bible and reference it because it doesn't play for them. And so he's going to use a totally different method. 
How you communicate and receive truth matters. It's intentional. It takes time to learn. It takes time to listen and read and study on your own outside of Sundays at 10.30. It's relational. Paul wasn't just the loudest voice in the room. He reasoned and he explained and he proved that the Old Testament points to Jesus Christ as the Messiah. He knew how to focus the conversation in different ways that would be best for different listeners. But the gospel and communicating also comes at a cost. But it has a great reward to know God better and to see others know him as well. It costs us time. It costs us energy. It might even cost us some of our own concepts and ideas, things that we previously held on to, some of the places we think that we are king or queen of our life that we need to give over to the good king. But if we are willing to seek and to knock and to go looking and searching to know Christ better and to have others know him better, if we are willing to pursue becoming Christ-like and proclaiming Christ as the mission of our church, if that focus, if that's the focus for this church, for this community, for us as individuals, then God's going to be glorified and he will be exalted and we and many of us, many with us will come to find rest in the grace and mercy and love of God the God of all existence, the God who made us and knows us and loves us so much he sent his son to die for us. May we communicate and receive truth with grace and love and intentionality. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today and we thank you for this reminder of your truth. That for as important as it is for us to know what we believe, to be able to articulate the gospel and know where we have put our faith, the how is important as well. How we do that, how we communicate, how we engage, how we speak to people and relate to people and, and see people, it matters. Just because we have the truth, just because we know truth, that doesn't just make us the loudest voice in the room. It doesn't just make us give us the moral high ground all the time. We need to be able to relate and engage with people and hear them and, and meet them where they are so that they might know the truth that we have, to not see it as a weapon, but to see it as a joyful gift that we have to give others. And God, as we hear truth, as we receive it, as whether it's from a, a person or from a sermon or, or wherever it might come from, Lord, help us, give us the motivation to test, to check, to use it as fuel to engage with you. Because as we do those things, as we go and check and test, we're doing that and we're finding you, more of you, knowing you more, engaging with you more. And that's shaping and cultivating us into the people you are making us to be. God, give us that intentionality. Give us that desire, that hunger and thirst. God, David wrote about how he delighted in the law, how it was like honey on his lips. That wasn't even the Gospels. That wasn't even the Epistles. That wasn't even Revelation. That was the, the hard stuff. But just having that word from you, having that trust, that knowledge that you had something better, that knowledge and, and understanding that you had a plan in place, an intentional plan in place, it was a delight for him. It was what he woke up for. It was He went to sleep thinking about it. He woke up thinking about it. Oh, God, that you would give us that same kind of hunger and thirst, that same kind of desire to get into your word, to know it better, to know you better, to ask questions, to go digging, to hear, and just 
even just spend time to just sit and be and let your word wash over us. God, we believe this is your word from you. Not that we worship the Bible, we worship you, but you have given us this word, this gift. God, help us to treat it like, it is, like what it is. God, we live in a world that is hard to live in and it is dark and hard and broken and messy and pretty awesome. Your word is a light unto our feet and a lamp unto our path. It's the only source of stability in this messed up world. Help us to desire to know you better and to know to help others know them know you better as well God that we might be a people who are the lights of the world that point others to you we can't do it on our own we need you we thank you and praise you amen